Hello, just a quick preliminary to our show. Bonin Sickle is taking August off in order to perform some much-needed maintenance. And to fill the gap, we'll be offering listeners a sampling of the short bonus episodes enjoyed by our patrons subscribing at the $4 monthly rate. We uh, hope you enjoy this peek into an alternate Bowden Sickle universe, and that if you do, you might consider joining us on Patreon to hear more of these. You can access the entire archive of episodes, about six hours of material, immediately upon signing up. We'll be back in September with regular episodes. Welcome to our 12th episode of Marvelous and Rare Antiquarian Circle. We offer this show exclusively to Patreon subscribers as a thank you for the support that makes Bone and Sickle possible. These short episodes consist exclusively of readings from rare books from the shelves of our library here. In this episode, we'll be reading again from the 1825 volume compiled by Sherwood Jones and Company entitled The Terrific Register or Record of Crimes, Judgments, Providences, and Calamities. I hope you find it enjoyable. Okay, our first entry, The Combat of the Dog of Montagie. The fame of an English dog has been deservedly transmitted to posterity by a monument in bas-relief which still remains on the chimney-piece of the Grand Hall at the castle of Montagie in France. The sculpture, which represents a dog fighting with a champion, is explained by the following narrative. Aubry de Mondier, a gentleman of family and fortune, traveling alone through a forest, was murdered and buried under a tree. His dog, an English bloodhound, would not quit his master's grave for several days, till at length, compelled by hunger, he proceeded to the house of an intimate friend of the unfortunate Aubry at Paris, and, by his melancholy howling, seemed desirous of expressing the loss they had both sustained. He repeated his cries, ran to the door, looked back to see if anyone followed him, returned to his master's friend pulled him by the sleeve, and, with dumb eloquence, entreated him to go with him. The singularity of all these actions of the dog, added to the circumstance of his coming without his master, whose faithful companion he had always been, prompted the company to follow the animal, who conducted them to a tree where he renewed his howl, scratching the earth with his feet, and, significantly, entreating them to search that particular spot. Accordingly, on digging, the body of the unfortunate Aubrey was found. Sometime after, the dog accidentally met the assassin, the Chevalier Macaire, deemed by all historians, treating the matter as the true perpetrator of the deed. When, instantly seizing him by the throat, the dog was with great difficulty compelled to quit his prey. 
In short, whenever the dog saw the Chevalier, he continued to pursue and attack him with equal fury. Such obstinate virulence in the animal, confined only to Macaire, appeared very extraordinary, especially to those that once recollected the dog's remarkable attachment to his master, and several instances in which Macaire's envy and hatred to Aubry de Mondedier had been conspicuous. Additional circumstances created suspicion, and at length the affair reached the royal ear. The king, Louis VIII, accordingly sent for the dog, which appeared extremely gentle, till he perceived Macaire in the midst of several gentlemen, when he ran fiercely toward him, growling at and attacking him as usual. The king, struck with such a collection of circumstantial evidence against Macaire, determined to refer the decision to the chance of battle. In other words, he gave orders for a combat between the chevalier and the dog. The combat was to be staged in the Isle of Notre Dame, then an unenclosed, uninhabited place, and Macaire was allowed, for his weapon, a great cudgel. An empty hutch was given to the dog as a place of retreat to enable him to recover breath. Everything being prepared, the dog no sooner found himself at liberty than he ran round his adversary, avoiding his blows and menacing him on every side, till his strength was exhausted. Then, springing forward, he gripped him by the throat, threw him on the ground, and obliged him to confess his guilt in the presence of the king and the whole court. In consequence of this, the chevalier, after a few days, was convicted upon his own acknowledgement and beheaded on a scaffold in the Isle of Notre Dame. A good dog. And, uh, let's see, our next one. It's a, a fishy turn of fate. Providential Escape. In the year 1709, a packet boat returning from Holland to England was so shaken by a tempest that she sprung a leak and was in the utmost extremity of danger in the midst of her course when all the mariners and passengers were in the last distress and the pumps had been worked to carry off the water, but all to little purpose. By a good providence, the hole filled and was stopped seemingly of itself. This struck them all with wonder and astonishment. No sooner did they get safe into port than they examined the ship to see what was the matter and found a fish sticking in the very hole which had been driven into it by the force of the tempest. Without this wonderful providence, they all must have perished. Okay. Ah, this... Uh, Next one seems to be from a travel journal, someone traveling in countries that only identified as Arabia. It's a sort of abrupt excerpt from the journal. Scarcity of water in hot countries. Frequently, thirst threw me, says Monsieur Bisson, into fits of the most extravagant frenzy. None but those who have felt its torments can guess to what absurdities the sufferer may be transported. I beheld the Arabs themselves in a state of despondency. Many died of thirst and hunger. The season did not promise them any relief. It was the fourth time the drought had destroyed their harvests. This desperate state of affairs so alienated the minds of the different tribes that they went furiously to war with each other. The object of contention 
was who could carry off most cattle to dry their flesh for eating. As for milk, there was not a drop to be had. Water was still scarcer, as none hardly was to be found in the desert, except near the sea, and that salt, black, and unwholesome. In this crisis, I saw to what contrivances men may have recourse in. The camels that were killed furnished drink to these Arabians who were deprived of milk. Particular care was taken to preserve the water retained in the stomach of these animals. This was separated from the dung, and the pressure came out a greenish liquid which was frequently used to boil our meat. That drawn from the body of the goat tasted of fennel and had a tolerable, pleasant smell. I never thought it disagreeable to drink. That of the camel is indeed rather disgusting. But I was much surprised that those animals who did not drink about two or three times a year and eat nothing but dried plants should have such a prodigious quantity of water in their stomachs, especially the camel. Note to self, bring water. Uh, okay, our next one. Uh, fatal Frolic. A few years since, on a wedding day in a family in Norfolk, by way of pastime after dinner, the party assembled played at hide-and-seek. It being the turn of the bride to hide herself, she soon disappeared, but on searching, could not be found. The mirth was soon converted into sadness, as in truth she could nowhere be found, or made to hear the earnest calls made for her. In fact, she never again made her appearance nor could she be found or traced, notwithstanding the diligence and labor exerted. At length, in two or three years after, by some chance, an old oak chest was opened, when, with horror, her faded remains in her wedding garment were found within it. It was then discovered that, to hide herself, she had gotten to the chest, which shut with a spring lock, and being very close, had produced alarm, fainting, and suffocation, and hence she was neither seen nor heard, nor could she hear or answer. Uh, our next one. Equality in Danger. The French general Chérin was once conducting a detachment through a very difficult pass. He exhorted his soldiers to endure patiently the fatigue of the march. It is easy for you to talk, said one of the soldiers near him. You are mounted on a fine horse, unlike we poor devils who march. On hearing these words, Chérin dismounted and quickly proposed to the discontented soldier to take his place. The latter did so, but scarcely had he mounted when a shot from the adjoining heights struck and killed him. You see, said Shara, calling to his troops, that the most elevated place is not the least dangerous, after which he remounted his horse and continued the march. Ooh, there's a lesson for all of us, I suppose. We'll see. Uh, execution of George Marsh, an English martyr. 
Upon the 4th of April, 1555, George Marsh came out of prison with a book in his hand and a lock on his leg, and was led to the place of execution near Spittlebout. And so, kneeling down, he made his prayers and stripped himself to his shirt, and was chained to the post, having a number of torches under him, and a cask with pitch and tar in it hanging over his head. And because the fire was unskillfully made, and the wind drove the flames to and fro, he suffered great extremity in his death, which, notwithstanding, he endured very patiently. And when he had been a long time tormented in the fire without moving, having his flesh so broiled and puffed up that those who stood before him could not see the chain wherewith he was fastened, and therefore supposed he was dead, he suddenly spread abroad his arms, saying, Father of heaven, have mercy upon me, and so yielded up his spirit into the hands of the Lord. Whereupon, many of these people who were present said he was a martyr, and died wonderfully patient and godly. Hmm. I have another one about punishment or execution. A little more mundane. Yes, Modes of Punishment in Cairo. If a butcher sells short weight or stinking meat, for the first offense his stock of meat is given to the poor and he is tied to a post where the sun may shine all day upon him. They then hang a piece of putrid flesh close to his nose and leave him in that position till the piece of flesh produces worms and falls down upon his body. Besides this, he is sentenced to pay a sum of money. For the second offense, he undergoes severe corporal punishment and is obliged to pay a very heavy fine. And the third offense is punished with death. Thieves and housebreakers are also put to death after suffering torture. If a pickpocket or thief is convicted, he is beheaded without any formal trial. But a housebreaker is placed naked upon a camel, and his legs are tied under the camel's belly. The executioner rides behind him, having in his hands thin candles made of brimstone. The driver of the camel drives him through most of the capital streets, and in the meantime, the executioner, having lighted the candles, puts them upon the criminal's skin. The candles, being very long, hang down over his shoulders on his breast and back, burning from the bottom upwards. And, when all his candles are burnt out, carries him into a place called the Black Square, where all criminals are beheaded, and there he cuts his head off. And our next one, Notices of Approaching Death. In 1727, in the month of February, at which time Langford Collin, Esquire, lived in York, one night coming home, he immediately and very speedily undressed himself and went to bed to his lady, who, being awake, he spoke to her, that he had hardly exchanged six words when he was surprised at a sudden knock given to the street door, so loud as if it had been with a great sledgehammer, which made him suddenly rise up out of the bed and with a pair of pistols in his hand, he hastened across the landing place to the dining room, but before he could reach the door of it, 
he heard a second knock, full as loud as the first, at which, impatient and fearing it might injure his lady, then pregnant and near her time, he, with all expedition, did run to the window, during which a third knock was heard, not only by himself, but several of his family. But throwing the sash open, he saw nobody, neither at the door, nor on one side or other of the house, though it was clear moonlight and nothing to obstruct his sight either way for considerable distance. Still thinking it was done by some unlucky person out of game or wantonness, he discussed the next morning his uneasiness at such usage at the coffee house, declaring with some warmth how highly he did resent it, nor did he change his opinion till the next day's post brought him a letter which informed him of the death of his cousin Thomas Smith, Esquire of Nottingham, who died at London at the time the said knocking was heard. But wait, there's more. About three years after that, the same gentleman, sitting up with his convalescing brother, Mr. Abel Collins, heard from twelve o'clock at night till it struck one a continual noise of driving nails into a coffin in the workshop of the joiner, John Baker, which abutted upon their yard, at which he was very much offended as thinking it very unkind from an intimate acquaintance of the sick person when soon after he heard a noise as if two or three men were landing a coffin in the room over his head, which made him suspect it to be a foreshadowing of his brother's death, who departed this life exactly at one o'clock the next day. One more. The Maid and the Magpie. A noble lady of Florence who resided in a house which still stands opposite the lofty Doric column which was raised to commemorate the defeat of Pietro Strozzi lost a valuable pearl necklace, and one of her waiting women, a very young girl, was accused of the theft. Having solemnly denied the fact, she was put to torture, which is then given at Florence. Unable to withstand its terrible infliction, she acknowledged that she was guilty, and without further trial, she was hung. Shortly after, Florence was visited by a tremendous storm. A thunderbolt fell on the figure of justice and split the scales, one of which fell to the earth and, with its fall, the ruins of a magpie's nest, containing the pearl necklace. Those scales are still the haunt of birds. And on that tragic note, we'll end. With uh, that, we'll switch from books to music to close out our show. Our selection from the library this time is a 1929 recording by Billy Murray. Or uh, that's the singer, at least. I uh, see writing credits attributed to four different people, so it's a little hard to tell who composed the song. But... It's a safe bet that Murray's version was the best known, as he was uh, one of the most popular singers of his day. He uh, started out in vaudeville as a teen and went on to record for pretty much everyone who was making records back then, performing with a number of bands, including the, uh, interestingly and perhaps unintentionally, morbidly named Seven Blue Babies. He also occasionally worked as a voice talent in animation, providing the voice for Betty Boop's dog, Bimbo, among other things. 
He didn't specialize in comic songs, but this one certainly succeeds as such and was still being covered by a few artists in the 1950s and 60s. And there's a nice overlay of uh, paranoid schizophrenia I think listeners may enjoy. So I'll say farewell for now with this bit of sage advice from Billy Murray singing, Shut the door, they're coming through the window. of your conversation on the telephone for other people may hear things just meant for you alone the other night the wires were crossed and though it sounds absurd here's a little ear full of the things we overheard hello hello is this the sheriff's office yes it's the sheriff speaking say i live up in hackensack in a house down by the sea oh you live up in hackensack well why blame that on me There are 20 crooks around the house, so Sheriff, I need you. Now don't you get excited, and I'll tell you what to do. Yes? Shut the door. Ah, but they're coming through the window. Oh, well, shut the window. Now they're coming through the door. Well, shut the door. Yes, but they're coming through the window. Oh, the room is full and won't hold any more. Hello? Is this a menagerie? Yes. This is Andy Gooch. Did you say Gooch or Hooch? Say, don't get sarcasm. My room is full of elephants. They're colored green and pink. (laughs) Also purple monkeys, and I can't sleep a wink. Ah, we'd like to take them from you, but there's no room in the zoo. They're bringing my relations now, so what am I to do? Oh, shut the door. They're coming through the window. Well, shut the window. They're coming through the door. Ah, shut the door. But they're coming through the window. Look, now they're coming right up through the floor. Hello, Mr. Newlywed. This is the doctor speaking. Ah, yes, 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 doctor. I called you up to say a stork brought you a son and heir. Great. Another stork brought you a girl. Well, I don't mind a pair. I see more storks circling round and think they're going to light. Oh, Doc, do me a favor, please. I'll try with all my might. Say, shut the door. Oh, but they're coming through the window. Well, shut the window. (laughs) Now they're coming in the door. Yes, but Doctor, shut the door. They're coming through the window. Boy, you're in luck. They only brought you four. Good night. Hello, Wall Street. Oh, 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 oh. Yes, this is Takem and Skinham, brokers. Say, you told me to tell all my friends to buy a certain stock. I told them and they bought it, and now they're all in hock. Well, my advice to you, old man, is take it on the run. Gee, I'd like to, but they're all outside, and each one has a gun. Well, shut the door. Ah, but they're coming through the window. Yes? Well, shut the window. Look, they're coming through the door. (laughs) Well, shut the door. Help, they're coming through the window. That's all there is there.